Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, believe it or not, has its own history, like celery, bandages or whistles. Sweat, debt and het. Het is all about, it's getting het up. It's about, it's the equivalent of getting your knickers in a twist. And it's a very, very muggy and hot day today, so the... The thought of doing something on sweat, which of course we've done already, uh, is a really, really good one. However, this is to digress as always, because what we will be doing is following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, that the history of perfume was in fact all about the Reformation, the First World War, the French Revolution. In fact, everything. The history of perfume could be about anything because it is all about the scent or the smell of the past. Oh, that's good, James. It's very good, isn't it? <laughs> I like that. Or um, the history of the itch is all about phlegm, penitence, infidelity, syphilis, and believe it or not, gunpowder. That's a good one. Hmm. Oh, we're loving that. Love the, love the thought of doing something on gunpowder and then actually making it not about weapons or guns at all. You know, it's about um, <laughs> it's about cleansing your it's about cleansing your gums uh, instead, or it's gunpowder as disinfectant. Um, yeah, I mm, can imagine right, something yeah. going very well like that. The man sitting opposite me, well, he's not actually because we're the other end of town. We're recording this in lockdown still. Well, let's just say if history was facial hair, he would be its handlebar moustache. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me because he is sitting across the other side of town in a shed that I hear is baking hot. So feel sorry for him. But he is the bearded bard himself the wonderful historical adventurer who isn't doing much historical adventuring at the moment, but nonetheless, he still has the name of Dr. Sam Willis. 
Hello, Sam. Thanks, James. Hello, everyone. Um, what, a, what a wonderful interview. I am in the, the world's hottest shed, actually, and um, I, 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 that is inspiring me to do a podcast on the history of misery. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm borderline miserable. I'm that hot, actually. We've never done uh, sheds never... either. We should do sheds. No, and someone had recommended this very early on to do sheds and then had a go on at us on Twitter for not doing it. So um, let's do sheds. That would be wonderful. Yes. It's a really good one to do. Um, but today what we're doing is um, a part two of the history of beards. James and I were so inspired um, with the research into the history of beards we did for our last episode that we ended up with so many more notes than we thought we'd need. And so we talked... Um, in a fascinating way for a good half an hour and decided that we were going to stop and then carry on because we both got much more wonderful material which we had found in the archives of our minds, all sorts of wonderful examples which have come from um, all sorts of different aspects of our careers as well. I found yes. I was really kind of going through all of my historical inspiration, realising how much there was to do with facial hair and beard. So part one, we talked about things like Peter the Great, the Tsar of Russia, who's one of my favourites. He's one of James's favourites. We talked about gas masks. We talked about Algerian pirates. We talked about people turning Turk. Um, what else did we talk about, James? Oh, the Amish? Well Yep. We talked about the Amish. We talked about the Crimean War, which led to a craze mm. for beards uh, in Britain. Uh, and previously, beards had not been worn by soldiers. And suddenly the cold conditions of the Crimea meant that people were allowed to wear uh, beards. And, and so much so that Queen Victoria commented on it. And if you are coming to this podcast, number two on beards afresh, please stop rewind and go back to episode one because you will hear much much more there and it will put everything in a really good context for you. We also talked about the wonderful work of Alan Withy uh, who is somebody who is a medical historian who works on beards and what I forgot to say was that I've never met him uh, but he just looks like the kind of person that you'd want to go out and have a really interesting chat with in a pub. So, Alan, if you're next in Exeter, down in lockdown, do get in touch and I'd love to take you out and buy you a beer or two. Um, that is... <laughs> I thought you were going to say something different. I thought you were going to say he's exactly the sort of man who looks like he should have a beard. <laughs> well, I, I, can't I can't remember. I, 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 I can't remember. I, I think he probably toys with, with, with beards or not. Yeah. Um, but he's one of those people whose work I greatly, greatly admire and read a lot for the chapter on beards that we wrote in our, in our big book, uh, the Histories of the Unexpected, How Everything Has a History. But what I wanted to start with uh, in this episode part two of The Beards was beards and medical anxieties. Because we coi there is a phrase that is a, a pognopho, pognophobia. And this is a, a, the sort of the fear of beards. And beards for a long time have been something that people have been concerned about or feared. Um, and part of it is about the fact that beards obscure the face. And so you can't actually read somebody's expressions under the beard. They obscure sort of checkered characters and visages. But also there are various medical anxieties attached to these hairs on the chin, or more accurately, hairs that grow around the mouth. And every child, every child and every adult, every parent will, of course, know 
Roald Dahl's The Twits, uh, the depiction of Mr. Twits' food-encrusted beard, uh, which is a beard that sort of acted like a larder for food, for snacks, that should he get hungry between meals, he'd be able to pluck out a rather choice morsel. I remember reading this to my girls a few years ago, uh, and I'm getting quite sort of woo, quite quite excited and quite grossed out by that. <laughs> or there's the literary nonsense monger, the brilliant Edward Lear and his old man with a beard. Uh, and the phrase goes, two owls and a hen, four larks and a wren have all built their nests in my beard. Now, this is very amusing, but also there's a sense in which these beard originating health hazards have their own history. Now, listen to this. There's an article that was published in a, an American newspaper, the New York Sun, uh, dated around the 10th of May 1902. And the headline ran, Danger Found in the Beard. It'll probably be with an American accent, uh, but I'm not going to try that. Declared by doctors to be a carrier of disease. And then the article, the article's fascinating. If you Google it, you can find it online, a digital image of it. And it, it goes on to warn of the dangers of long-bearded milkmen stroking germs from their beards downwards into the milk they carried. And this is, this is, oh. this is, this is, this is, it's unbelievably gross. It's quite rank, isn't it? But also, if you think about the, the sort of physicality of what's going on, not only do you have uh, long bearded milkmen, but also you have milk bottles or milk churns without lids on, so without the sort of foil top. And so the germ would sort of creep into them. It quite puts you off the idea of, of drinking milk during that period. Or this is slightly more gross. It's a surgeon who allowed his beard to touch and therefore to carelessly infect the wounds of patients on whom he was operating. <laughs> um, and it, I think you know, that's even more horrible. <laughs> and, 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 and in COVID-19 uh, global world, you know, we're oh. seeing, we're, we're getting very used to pictures of uh, doctors, physicians being completely gowned up in PPE. And yet here we have a guy whose beard could touch um, the sort of open wound of somebody and therefore... Oh, and that's like, I've got a real sense of someone um, kind of bending over, peering into oh. the wound to sew it oh, up it's or horrid. anything and then it's accidentally <laughs> nudging it's... it with his beard. It's <laughs> horrid. And these are not just isolated examples from history. Um, there is also... There, these kinds of um, descriptions are everywhere. And also there was a, a recent scientific study uh, which was conducted in... 2015 by a microbiologist called John Golobic. I think that's how you, or Golobic, Golobic, Golobic. Uh, I imagine that's how you pronounce it. G-O-L-O-B-I-C. And he produced a report, and I'd love to, I'd love to work out how he actually conducted this experiment. I can imagine, but I'd love to read the sort of the details of this. He, co he conducted an experiment, the report of which, the conclusion of which was that beards trap feculent particles and harbour more germs than a toilet seat. Now, how you go about <laughs> empirically testing that, I don't know. But it's something that it's something that very um, that I, I, you know, that I find uh, slightly um, grosses you out. Uh, I've heard similar things about um, about toothbrushes as well. And that one should one right. should basically put the toilet seat lid down before flushing, uh, which will stop that. Um, however, so. What we've been talking about here is all of these sort of medical anxieties associated with the beard as a sort of, you know, a trap for, for germs. But also in the past, it was quite different. 
and luxuriant beard growth was in fact a sign of rude health and it was something that was connected to masculinity as well as to virility and if you think back to podcast number one there we were talking about these mustachioed bushy bearded soldiers and that was all about manhood and masculinity and soldierly prowess coming back from the Crimean War as this sort of symbol of, of you know, aggressive and assertive uh, soldierly masculinity. Um, but if we go back to a period prior to the to 1800, we think about a system where there's a humoral system of medicine. Uh, this underpins Western medical thinking. Um, and it basically, just to sort of summarise it very, very simply, it the concept is that the body is comprised of four distinct humours. So you have you have firstly blood, you have phlegm, you have yellow bile, you have black bile. And there is a correct balance of each of these different humours that was a prerequisite for the healthy body. It was different for men and it, than, than it was for women. And different sort of components would lead to different sort of biological characteristics for men and women. And actually what's interesting as a gender historian is the way in which this underpins the way in which people in the 16th, 17th and into the 18th century uh, thought about uh, male and female behaviour. But what I'm interested in here is how it connects to beards, because in this humoral system, facial hair is seen as a form of bodily waste, and it was thought to be connected to the liver and heat in the genital area. And according to the Elizabethan physiognomer Thomas Hill, and I quote, the beard in man beginneth to appear in the nethered jaw through the heat and moisture carried unto the same, drawn from the genitals, which draw them to them especially the sperm from those places. In other words, beard growth is seen as healthy and it's something that is connected to male virility and sexual potency. And if we skip across the generations, as we are allowed to do in this luxuriant podcast that we have here that allows us to pitch around the past. Um, if we move to the Victorian period, beards then are also celebrated for their health related qualities. And they were in some ways seen as masks or what we might describe as nature's respirators. And if you think about this is a period when the Industrial Revolution is in full swing. You've got factories, you've got noxious air, you've got harmful dust. Um, the idea was that in these sort of unhealthy environments, every working man needed a lush crop of facial hair in order to filter out these nasties or these impurities. So much so that in 1854, a, a committee uh, which was wonderfully titled the Committee on Industrial Pathology on Trades which Affect the Eyes argued that growing a beard and whiskers did not simply just protect the face but, and I quote, arrested the particles of dust and grit by the hair of the beard and whiskers and thus relieved the eyes. And this was, this was something that you can see that applies to men. The problem is that women who didn't have facial hair, didn't grow beards, worked under similar conditions, and there wasn't something there to sort of help them out. But nonetheless, the medical properties of beards are seen as something that prevents noxious substances, not only getting into the eyes, but also into the nose and throat, which led doctors of the time to recommend that male patients who needed to protect their voices 
also grow beards. And this is particularly the case with clergymen. Clergymen who on a Sunday morning in their stentorian tones would boom out a Sunday sermon needed to keep the voice chords, you know, pristine and, and free from any sort of noxious uh, dust or grit or whatever that would allow them to talk at great, great sort of force and so they would grow a beard in order to protect that. And in our book what we do is we then go on to talk about how this connects to the very important question of the history of dust but we will not do that now. No, dust is a fascinating one. But basically what you've got there is people using their beards, mm. which is not something I'd think anyone's really given much thought to. But essentially they're using their beards to maintain their voices, which is good. Your um, points about health are interesting because there's a, it's kind of brought to mind this quote by Benjamin Franklin. Um, and it, Benjamin Franklin is one of my favourite people. Mm. So you get a sense of why I think from this brilliant quote. If you teach a poor young man to shave himself and keep his razor in order, you may contribute more to the happiness of his life than in giving him a thousand guineas. This sum may be soon spent, the regret only remaining of having foolishly consumed it. But in the other case, he escapes the frequent vexation of waiting for barbers and of their sometimes dirty fingers, offensive breaths and dull razors. One of the great things about this quote is, is how much of a kind of a, a, a frantically busy, energetic man Benjamin Franklin was. And he just can't cope with the fact he's got to sit down and wait for barbers, which is something that drives me absolutely up the wall. But I do like this point as well about the, um, the dirty fingers, the offensive breaths and the, and the dull razors and, and him disliking being shaved, the whole process of being shaved. Um, but one of the things it does is make you think about the people who are doing the shaving and being a barber, often an itinerant barber, people had the trade, they travelled with the trade, was a way of life for thousands of people um, uh, in, throughout um, the, certainly the 18th century and the 17th century. Um, and beyond. So there's an entire way of life here of people shaving. And that way of life was, was really damaged in the 1770s when they invent the personal razor. Absolutely. And that, of course, connects us to razor gangs in Glasgow uh, in the <laughs> 1930s <laughs> and the Glasgow smile. But what I want to do is take us in a, in a direction that you introduced yesterday, because um, in the podcast number one on beards, you talked about the Amish communities, Amish communities. And one of the things that uh, is interesting about them, um, and you were pivoting on what we were saying about military beards. And when once beards become associated with the military, the Amish communities wanted to distinguish themselves as peaceful. And so while they grew beards, they in fact shaved their moustaches. So they had a sort of clean shaven top lip and then a sort of little sort of beard underneath and that was a mark of their of their religion and their 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 peacefulness and i think mm. the point that i want to make here and i'm going to connect this in a sort of roundabout way to the beards are all about the reformation um so that's my sort of main argument that i'm trying to make here but i want to start by setting the background and saying that you know for many cultures uh, across time uh, the beard was often closely linked to religion and it's either a sign of conformity and belonging or it's a way of showing rebellion and rejecting the way that people um, in the past have practiced. It's official dogma 
for example, for Sikhs to grow a full natural beard if they're if they're able to, a male Sikhs, uh, which is a practice that is known as Kesh. And it's a sign of respect for the perfection of God's creation. We then we've talked already about the, the Amish communities, but then in Islamic faiths, too, the beard was something that was an important part of, of religion with 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 variations um, according to different traditions. Uh, Shia scholars stipulate that beard length should not exceed the width of a fist. So it could only grow to a certain length. And what this meant was that trimming beards was fine, but shaving was religiously strictly forbidden. On the other hand, Sunni traditions hold, held that trimming the moustache is essential. So keeping everything sort of nicely clipped. According to Bukhari and Muslim Hadith collections, or in other words, those sort of prophetic traditions, the Prophet Muhammad stipulated that five things are part of nature. To get circumcised, to remove the hair below one's navel, to trim moustaches and nails and remove the hair under the armpit. And it's striking that in each of these examples, allowing one's facial hair to grow naturally is seen as a very important central part of an individual's religious observance. And if you take it one step further, you can even find examples where the beard is conceptualised as God's work. So we've mentioned yesterday the English physician John Bulwer, and writing in 1653, uh, he considered that shaving was not only indecent, but was also blasphemous. And I quote, most inexorable against nature and God, the author of nature, whose work the beard is. And if we think about it in less sort of religious terms, more secular terms, if you look at a manual, uh, The Philosophy of Beards, which was published in 1875 by T.S. Gowing, he accused shavers there, men who didn't grow beards, of a deliberate offence against nature and reason. Now, here we get to the idea about the Reformation. If you study... Uh, medieval priests in the Catholic Church, the norm for them was to be clean-shaven in appearance, with the exception of certain occasions such as mourning. I assume the understanding there is when one is grieving, you don't necessarily have time to take care of your sort of daily um, facial grooming, uh, and beards are allowed. Um, what's interesting, though, is what happens in the 16th century with continental European reformers, among them Martin Luther, um, who is one of the sort of, you know, real sort of uh, founding fathers of, of, of the reform movement. And reformers, the reformers' clerical beard was a conscious anti-Catholic gesture. So they all grew facial hair as a visible mark of distinction from those previous generations of medieval Catholic priests. And in so doing, there was an aggressive rejection of the establishment church, an attack, a visual attack against the, the Catholic Church and a sign of their reformed rebellion. Now, this is not to say that in the 16th and 17th century, um, not that Catholics did not grow beards, because there are classic examples, particularly of popes, who grow beards as a mark of religious authority. So it's more about patriarchal wisdom. And if you take, for example, the brilliant portrait of Pope Sixtus uh, V, 
Um, this is the man who excommunicated Elizabeth I. Uh, if you have a look at the portrait of him in the Vatican Museum, it shows him with a really striking white beard. Um, and he's a very significant figure in the Counter-Reformation. Um, and, and what you see is him with a very severe countenance, very severe looking face, furrowed brow, lips set beneath this, this facial hair. Um, and throughout the sort of 1580s, he was joined on the political European stage by another uh, bearded ruler, uh, this time uh, Philip II of Spain, uh, the man who is famous for uh, sending the Armada uh, across to uh, England, uh, potentially to invade. Um, and throughout his life, if we look at official portraits, he wore a beard. Now, what's interesting is if you contrast the papal beard of Sixtus V, which is a sort of full white papal beard, which is a sort of mark of patriarchal wisdom. In contrast, the Spanish monarch has a sort of more clipped, closely cropped, trimmed beard, which is much more in keeping with the style of beards worn by courtiers. Um, so there, there we go. The beard is connected to identity and, and religion and the Reformation. Yes, absolutely. Sixtus V, I mean, I really do have a look. Just please Google Sixtus V. He's an extraordinary looking person and a very important person. Um, if any of you have been lucky enough to go to Rome, um, he was fundamental in changing the, the layout of the streets. Yes. In Rome, one of the one of the many things that he achieved. Um, anyway, fascinating guy, and it does lead me on. He had a very white beard, James, didn't he? We're talking about his kind of. I am interested in my coloured beards. Uh, in the first episode of this, I talked about the two Barbarossa brothers. So this is not Frederick Barbarossa, the Holy Roman Emperor. These are the the Turkish pirates, the Barbarossa brothers, who were known as Red Beards. Um, and I talked a little about Blackbeard. I've spoken about Blackbeard before. But my favourite man with a coloured beard is Bluebeard. And I have vague recollections of my dad telling me stories about Bluebeard. And I'm not sure, thinking about it now, whether he was just making up stories about someone called Bluebeard or whether he told me the Bluebeard story. I think I would remember it if I knew the Bluebeard story. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about this guy. Um, and the important thing to realise is if you've listened to episode one on beards, I talked about Peter the Great and how he, in the 1690s, uh, visited London, among other places in Europe, and went back to Russia, wanting to uh, modernise Russia. And one of the key things he did is he made all of the nobles in his court shave, because um, there are very few people wearing beards in what he saw as more advanced societies. He wanted his country, Russia, to be more modernised, and one of the key things he did was shave everyone's beards. So there was something interesting about beards going on in the 1690s, which is when this story was written. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There was once a man who had fine houses, both in town and country, a deal of silver and gold plate, embroidered furniture and coaches gilded all over with gold. But this man was so unlucky as to have a blue beard, which made him so frightfully ugly that all the women and girls ran away from him. One of his neighbours, a lady of quality, had two daughters, who were perfect beauties. He desired of her one of them in marriage, leaving to her choice which of the two she would bestow on him. Neither of them would have him, and they sent him backwards and forwards from one to the other, not being able to bear the thoughts of marrying a man who had a blue beard. Adding to their disgust and aversion was the fact that he had already been married to several wives, and nobody knew what had become of them. So, Bluebeard ends up marrying one of these daughters and then he lavishes upon her a wonderful life filled with parties, hunting, fishing, dancing, mirth and feasting. Nobody ever went to bed. They all had a great deal of time. It specifically says that nobody went to bed. They all passed the night in rallying and joking with each other. This goes on for a very long time to the extent that the very doubtful young woman at the beginning of the story um, starts to like Bluebeard in spite of his horrible blue beard. She's starting to think he's actually underneath it all. In spite of this beard, he's actually OK. And then the story takes a bit of a shocking turn because Bluebeard announces that he's got to go travelling. And as he goes travelling, he presents his wife with a large set of keys. And he says, these are the keys for the... Um, all of the wine, this is the key for the larders, the key for the food, this is the key for my silver, my gold, where it's all kept in the, in the safe. This is um, the key for my jewellery box. This is the key for um, all sorts of wardrobes full of clothing. You can do anything you want. You can carry on having these parties. But, he says, this is a very small key. This small key is for the small door at the bottom of the stairs into which you must not ever go. And his wife manages to cope with this for a few weeks. She has her parties. She carries on living her life. And then, and then she cannot cope with the temptation of the small door. So she goes down to the bottom of the stairs. She opens the small door. And in she goes. And what she finds is it's like 
the scene from Hostel or Saw or something like this, because inside she finds the bodies of Bluebeard's ex-wives all piled up in a bloody grisly mess. She's so horrified she drops the keys and they land in a pool of blood. She escapes, shuts the door, locks the door and then tries to recover. Several days later Bluebeard returns and what she's tried to do is to clean the keys from the blood but she can't do it. She cannot remove the blood stains from the keys. So Bluebeard comes back and he knows what she's done. He sees the blood on the key and he says, ah, oh, well you have not been able to resist the temptation so I think you want to go and join the other people in that room under the stairs. He tries to murder her, but she's saved at the last minute by her brothers who come riding to the rescue. It's an appalling story. It's absolutely terrifying. And it was told um, all over Europe to uh, countless young girls, I think. Absolutely terrifying. It was specifically told about the dangers of temptation and also of the need to do what you're told by your husband. And what's interesting about it is that um, it's the way morals, I think, changed over time. I actually have a copy of this from, a, um, it's called the Blue Fairy Book, and it was written in 1889, so 200 years after the story itself was written. And um, the author here, the editor, has identified the moral in the story, and he says this. Curiosity, in spite of its appeal, often leads to deep regret. To the displeasure of many a maiden, its enjoyment is short-lived. Once satisfied, it ceases to exist and always costs dearly. But then he adds another moral, which is more applied to what he believes is his modern view of the world in 1889. Apply logic to this grim story, he says, and you will ascertain that it took place many years ago. No husband of our age would be so terrible as to demand the impossible of his wife, nor would he be such a jealous malcontent. For whatever the colour of her husband's beard, the wife of today will let him know who the master is. So it's absolutely fascinating here, the way that this story can be interpreted, the reasons for it being written, and how that all changed. One of the key things, of course, is why this guy's beard is blue. Various interpretations of it have been suggested, but basically that it's, it's an unnatural colour, therefore the man is unnatural, he is a monster. Um, it's otherwise been argued that the blue beard is it's it's empty, frosty, or or somehow cruel. Whereas to me, if I think of a blue beard, it makes me think of cartoons. It seems faintly ridiculous, which means James. At some point, we should do the fascinating history of the colour blue, <laughs> which oh, we'll do soon. I promise you. That sounds excellent. But I, I fizzing with questions. Uh, about this, what, uh, not least, at what age did your father terrify you with this with this story? I think if I if I told my daughters uh, this at the moment, they're eight and ten, uh, it would be terrifying, and I would be in dereliction of, of fatherly duties. But nonetheless, uh, picking up on this idea about the moral, I mean, part of this is about it's about anxieties about it's about male anxieties about how women, young women in particular, behave. Uh, and it's wanting to police their their sexuality uh, and control their 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 chastity and 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 it's uh, it resonates with what we've been saying throughout these two podcasts on beards, which is about this fear of beards. You know, while they while they look spectacular, um, there's also something to be to be feared. And so to join that up 
Uh, I want to talk now about the bearded lady, uh, concept of the bearded lady. And, and it's another type of beard that was feared in the past that's connected to, to women, uh, this time in women, um, in women growing beards. And there's a condemnation, almost universal condemnation of hirsute womanhood. And perhaps the most trenchant critic uh, is the 17th century physician John Bulwer, uh, who wrote, uh, and I quote, Woman is by nature smooth and delicate, and if she have many hairs, she is a monster. As Epictetus saith, and the proverb abominates her, a bearded woman must be greeted with stones from a distance. I mean, this is terrible, but it shows that kind of fear of of women not conforming to what is a stereotype for them. Now, doing a little bit of sort of researching around about this, one of the earliest references to a bearded lady that I found uh, was found in the travel writing of the French philosopher and polymath Michel de Montaigne. Uh, if you haven't read his essays, you should do. Uh, it's, they're a sort of encyclopedic uh, sort of range of writings about all sorts of objects and topics uh, in the uh, 16th century. Um, and what's lovely about them, because they're in essay form, they're things that you can sort of dip into. Um, the terrific reading. But anyway, to go back to his travel writing, in in one of his pieces of writing, he, he relates a story about a young 15-year-old French peasant girl, uh, a girl who was called Marie Germain. And as the story goes, she is out one day, she's chasing swine around her field. Uh, she leaps over a ditch uh, in hot pursuit of, of this swine. And the, the anecdote continues that she exerted so much effort and energy in leaping over this ditch that on landing, apparently a pair of genitals popped out of her body. And subsequent to this, I know, extraordinary, and subsequent to this transformation, she developed, and I quote, a big, very thick beard. She was examined by physicians then, and later she was baptised as a man. Because what happens is male genitalia and a beard are taken here to signify male gender. Now, we don't know the sort of the, the truth behind this story, whether she was um, in fact, a man in disguise, you know, we don't know. Um, but, you know, this is essentially a story about transsexuality in 16th century France. And without sort of having time here to sort of unpack it fully, it's another example of this male fear of beards. It's about people who don't quite conform to sexual stereotypes. And in that, I think if you're if you're looking for sort of how to write trans history uh, and people far better uh, qualified and skilled in close readings uh, than I are able to do that much more effectively. However, if we sort of think about the, the biology here, beard growth is linked to the stimulation of hair follicles by various hormones, which are much more pronounced in certain populations than in others. So there are certain sort of nations that are more hirsute than others. Um, it's more predominant in adult males than in women. Um, uh, some women, however, have a hormonal condition called hirsutism, which can lead to pronounced hairiness and often included the growth of facial hair and a beard. Um, and several members, if we're looking for sort of historical examples of this, there's a brilliant 
uh, is a case study uh, from the late 16th and early 17th century, connected to members of the family of Petrus Gonzalez, who throughout the late 16th and early 17th century lived at the French and Italian courts and were afflicted by a rare genetic condition now known as hypertrichosis universalis, which basically, when it boils down to it, meant that their entire bodies were covered in hair, like just all over, uh, including the entirety of their face. So it's not just that you grow a beard around the mouth and on the chin, but it's literally you grow it all around the eyes. They were studied at the time by scientists, by physicians, they were painted by artists, and many of their unusual portraits survive. And there's a brilliant account of them uh, by an Italian scientist called Ulissi Oldrovandi. And after visiting the family in 1594, he writes about the young daughter, Antoinetta uh, Gonzalez. He writes about her, the girl's face was entirely hairy on the front, except for the nostrils and her lips around the mouth. The hairs on her forehead were longer and rougher in comparison with those which covered her cheeks, although these are softer to touch than the rest of her body. And she was hairy on the foremost part of her back and bristling with yellow hair up to the beginning of her loins. Now, what's remarkable about this is that woodcuts of two of the daughters, Antoinetta and her sister, and this description were later published after Aldrovandi's death in a compendium called Monstrorum Historia, which was published in 1642. And it's a huge encyclopedic type volume that catalogued human and animal abnormalities. And if you're interested in this, um, a colleague and friend of mine, Mary Wiesner-Hanks, who's a brilliant gender historian uh, of, of early modern Europe, uh, a global historian, a real sort of polymath uh, historian. Um, she has published online open source a book called The Wild and Hairy Gonzalez Family. If you just Google that, Mary Wiesner-Hanks, The Wild and Hairy Gonzalez Family, you will be able to see the plates that I'm talking about. There is here the plate of the young girl in Monstrorum Historia, published in 1642, which depicts her um, in a sort of courtly dress, very elegantly dressed, um, holding what looks like a, a fan. Um, and she's got what looks like a, the face of a, almost like a teddy bear or some sort of you know, rather sort of hairy monster. It's a very sort of crude drawing of her. But then if you if you look further, there are the most beautiful portraits, just intricately painted. Um, there's a portrait of... Um, of her uh, dating from around 1583. And it shows her almost with a sort of cat-like face, but again, in very luxurious court dress, holding a letter. Her hands are interestingly not covered in hair. Uh, presumably that's to just accentuate the, the, the letter that she's holding up to show that she's uh, an educated uh, person. And if you look at the paper uh, that she's holding, it gives details about her life. And it, if you, it's translated as 
Don Pietro, a wild man discovered in the Canary Islands, was conveyed to his most serene highness, Henry and King of France, and from there came to his excellency, the Duke of Parma, from whom came I, Antoinetta, and now I can be found nearby at the court of Lady Isabella Palavincina, the Honourable Marchesa of Soragona. Um, so it's terrific. If you if you scroll down a little further, there's another little depiction uh, of them. So there we are. Um, we've got these. What a story! What a, what a story. fascinating people to look into. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and the past is actually populated by similar bearded women. And and while these uh, Renaissance examples are being studied uh, as sort of uh, as extraordinary and seen as monstrous, by the time you get to the Victorian period in the 19th century, they are again being paraded for show and spectacle, not contained within the court, but actually for open consumption. And bearded ladies were familiar sights at circuses and fairgrounds to be ogled at by paying punters who basically wanted to see what they saw as a freak show. Um, so yeah, fascinating history. Wow, what a journey, Sam. Amazing journey. Gosh, that epic two episodes on beards. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it'll help you make sense of the world around you when you look around and see all of these uh, all of these beards uh, that are now visible in lockdown. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Do please follow us on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell. And the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. Do please check out everything we've got going on, historiesoftheunexpected.com. And if you'd like to help, please leave us a review on iTunes. That really does help us get up the charts and spread the word. We also have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected. And we would really value anything you can offer us to support to help us keep going with this. We love doing it and we want to carry on. That's it for now, guys. We'll be back soon. Cheerio. Bye. Thanks a lot, guys. Stay safe and well. Bye.